Wait, before you fast forward, just hear me out for a minute. I know you hate ads and you're just here for the conversation. That's fine. You can now listen ad-free on either Patreon or Spotify for just five bucks a month. Also new on Spotify are the Q&A and the polls features, so make sure you check that out. I use some of the money from my awesome patrons on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher to buy some gear that will allow me to record outside and do a podcast right from the past year. Hopefully I'll have one coming up real soon, so stay tuned for that. I also have some beef coming up for sale, and more info will be coming along shortly. And finally, if you'd like to come visit the Alexander Ranch in scenic southwest Kansas and check out the hunting, fishing, and other outdoor recreation offerings on Land Trust, or if camping is more your style, I have a new listing on Hip Camp that you should definitely check out. I'm not going to spoil it here. And finally, you can also email me your suggestions and questions at redhillsrancher at gmail.com. All the links are in the show notes. All right. This week, we're joined by Nick Gann from Arkansas, who shares his insights on farming, business, and the mindset shift required to run a successful farm. We also discuss the impact of pesticides on local communities, marketing strategies for farm products, and the pros and cons of social media. So sit back, relax, and after the ad break, let's reboot your thinking about farming, ranching, and food systems. In the heartland of Kansas, under the bountiful sun, lies the Alexander Ranch, where Coriente cattle run. A century-old heritage on Red Hills so grand, where cattle graze freely on native grassland. Pastured and finished, amidst grasses warm and tall, raised on a diet nature intended, they heed her call. No hormones, no antibiotics, surely no grain, just wholesome beef, free from artificial stain. Harvested only when the pastures are lush and ripe. Our beef standards for quality of superior type. Experience the richness in every bite and chew. It's more than just beef. It's a history continue to new. So come along, cowboy. Our story's not just a leaf. Discover the magic of true grass-fed beef. Visit bluenestbeef.com and fill your kitchen shelf with the finest cuts of beef you're investing in your health. From the Red Hills of Kansas, our legacy unfurls. With the spirit of the prairie, the wind whispers and twirls. Every tender steak, each succulent roast, you'll taste the pride of our ranch, something we boast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Audubon Conservation Ranching Program and the Audubon Certified Bird-Friendly Seal, the new standard in connecting consumers to conservation. Once a ranch is certified as bird-friendly, a list that now includes yours truly, the Alexander Ranch, home of the Ranching Reboot podcast, beef, my beef products now carry the Audubon Certified Bird-Friendly Seal, which lets consumers know their purchases originated on lands managed both for birds and biodiversity. Why birds? Because birds like prairie chicken and quail I focus on are arguably the best indicators that your regenerative ranching practices have taken flight and are helping the entire ecosystem. If you're interested in joining me and Autobahn in working the intersection of land, food, and wildlife, learn more at autobahn.org backslash ranching. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, Nick Gann, how come you're not wearing a backwards hat? I don't think I've ever seen you without a backwards hat and a flannel shirt. Maybe like 
maybe twice I've seen you in a t-shirt. What's what's up with that? I always, unless I'm in my house here doing nothing or maybe working on my computer, I always wear my hat backwards. Matter of fact, I've got to a point now where unless I'm at church or something like that, it's, and if I have a hat on, it's going to be backwards. And the reason why is I catch myself thinking about this a lot. It's like, do you always have to wear it backwards? No, but turning it around now, it could show that I'm caving to what people think a 44 year old should do with his hat. And I do take a little bit of heat wearing it backwards, but you know what? It's kind of like, I equate it to this. When you go out to eat and you see uh, you see somebody sit down to eat and you see them you see them pray over their food. Sometimes those people and I've been one of them when they go to pray they have a little bit of maybe nervousness because other people are watching them. But really, what other people are doing is admiring the fact that they're doing something that they like or that they believe in. And so, with me, when a guy like like me, my age and what have you. When he's wearing his hat backwards and these other folks, maybe they, for lack of a better word, they just can't do it. They can't pull it off for whatever reason. They look at me and they're like, why don't I wear my hat backwards? That dude is. And so when I see somebody like Gary Vaynerchuk or, or, or maybe friends of mine who put their hat on backwards, it's admirable. And I look at them, I think, That's, I like that right there. Oh, I do that. We'll keep doing it then. Okay. I was kind of wondering if you did it just because, you know, like you like the hat, but you don't want to advertise the brand that it's on. I wear mine frontwards to keep the sun out of my eyes. Hey, I turn it around. There are times where I may be walking across a field or doing something. And like even we go to the lake a lot. We have a boat. We go to the lake. And if the sun is glaring in my eyes, I'll turn it around. I know how to use it. But if it doesn't have to be facing forward, it's not going to be. And I pay for that because like my, my farm hat here uh, has my logo on there. You don't see that because I wear it backwards. But you know what? Even my hats get wore backwards. And so the logo is back there. You want to see the logo? You got to get behind me. Have you ever considered having some made and putting a logo in the back so it's in the front when you're wearing it? I did have one made, actually. I had somebody make me one, that cattle tag with my logo on it. They actually put it on the side. Uh, of the back so you have your uh you have your your uh, clip here snap back here and the logo was here and then i ran into a to a young guy probably oh i think kobe's probably 12 years old and he he gave me a hat from his farm brand new hat from his farm and i was wearing my hat and i didn't have anything to offer him and i thought and he he watches me on social media and so he kind of likes me and so I know where that's going. I gave, I gave him the hat off my head. It's the only one I had. Okay. Probably. I don't know that I'll get another one. I, I like it with it on the back there. I don't know. There's just one of them out there. He's got it. Well, he's going to have a pretty cool story one of these days, you know, when, you, when you're big and famous, I guess. <laughs> if I'm ever big and famous, he'll have a pretty cool story. He's probably never going to have a pretty cool story. Yeah. Yeah. So. Tell me, tell me where your farm's at. I mean, I know you're in Arkansas, but where, where are you at in Arkansas? So I'm at, I'm right dab in central Arkansas. Matter of fact, uh, my town will argue with other areas in central Arkansas that we are the center of Arkansas. Matter of fact, we got a big stone downtown 
that says something like this is the official center of Arkansas. And I'm in Benton, just outside of Little Rock. And although we have a little bit of our operation here, and our operation is not big by any means, we have a little bit of it here at our house. We only live on three and a half acres. But we have a lease that we have. We, we lease some land that's about 17 minutes down the road. And we that's where our pasture is. And that's where I like for things to take place. Because when I come home or when I wake up, like right now, I got to do the chores here. Then I get in my truck and I drive 17 minutes and I do the chores there. And then when I come home from there, you look, you get out of your vehicle and you probably do the same thing. It's your farm. Don't look around. You'll see all sorts of stuff you need to be getting done. And so, and, and it, farming is not my only job. So at some point, which brings me to, let me, let's back up for just a second about the backwards hat. So I create content for my insurance agency. I own an independent insurance agency and, and I create content for that. I shoot videos, short videos without a hat. I don't want, you know, when I wear my hat backwards, I get these little inventions on my head. You know, you probably get them from your hat being forward too, but I get them from the snapback on my head. Right. And I don't need, I don't want those in my agency videos. I don't want a backwards hat and I don't want hat hair. So when I come inside, I'm ready for an agency video. They're nowhere near as good as the farm videos, but it's a different audience. It. it is. It's a different audience. And I see you posting those on a different platform too. Uh, I, I do. Yeah. I post them on a different platform. It's kind of a funny story. I was posting them on TikTok, which is where I have my farm content also, which I post my content everywhere. But somebody said something to me one day in a comment that I was, I forgot how they were. Basically, I was, I, maybe they said I was posting too much or doing something. It was, it was almost like uh, they were seeing both the agency and the farm. And they, they made a comment about how I was doing something. And I thought, I wonder if they're watching both channels. And they're, they're griping at me because I'm doing something on both channels. I, I don't remember. I just remember thinking, that's weird. That's a weird comment. Like, do I need to not post my agency stuff on TikTok? And I think I come to the realization that, you know what? You, you probably don't need to post your agency stuff over there. And there's plenty of other places for it to go. So I actually don't post agency stuff to TikTok anymore, but I post it to Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube shorts. I post my farm content to TikTok, Facebook, YouTube shorts, and Instagram. So there is a little bit of a, uh, 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 what would you call it? Like there's a little, I have an algorithm in my head of like how these things go. Of, of what and content to put on what? What, of what content to put where that's right yeah and the time the time frame on there i'm very i don't i don't know if you've noticed but i'm a short form guy when i go to watch videos i don't want a long drawing out uh, video so when i go to post videos they're not they're not long at all i'm, I'm quick i'm to the point i move on same thing with my agency content okay what so what kind of insurance do you sell i gotta know now well we're we're independent and so we can, we, we're not, you know, uh, handcuffed to like a state farm or a shelter or something like that. I'm, those are good companies, but I'm, I don't write for them. But most of what we do 
let me just tell you what we like to do. Because as an independent agency, we'll do anything except for health. What I like to do is homeowner's insurance, small commercial, which would include like hot shot trucking. Okay. Flood insurance, uh, like renovations or even a new construction. And then, oh, there's one more I was going to mention. And life insurance. I like to do life insurance. And I'm, I'm kind of picky about what I do. I'm not going to write you a $10,000 life insurance policy. But I, I, those are the ones that we focus on. That's what we like to write at our agency. Okay. We're, we're going to have to circle back to that. And we're definitely going to circle back to that. But like, kind of want to go back to where you said that, you know, your farm is 17 minutes away from the house. I've got kind of the same thing. We literally have three and a half acres here at the house and, you know, Tanya, she keeps chickens down here. We've got garden, um, got some guineas that just went out to the brooder. They're about, uh, they're just a little over two weeks old. So they, they got moved out to the outside brooder in the coop. Um, they're pretty cool. Do you have any guineas? I don't, I don't, I don't want any. <laughs> These are the first ones that we've, well, these aren't the first ones that we've raised. I tried to, I tried some about 10 years ago. It didn't go well moving on. Um, so yeah, we, we've got some guineas down here and the ranch, it's about eight miles away. Like ranch headquarters is eight miles away down the roads, flagpole to flagpole. It's a pretty reliable 12 minute commute. I mean, 13, if there's traffic 11, if it's, you know, kind of a good day, <laughs> but I, I get in the mode, I get there and it's like, okay. I'm here, take care of cows, check these, check these, do this, do this, do this, do this. And I'm not saying I, I don't like spend any more time there than I have to. Go to the ranch, get the things done, do the things that need to be done. Yeah, there's some busy work that sometimes I might skip, but I'm also very cognizant of, of the weather. And, and that that's because it's been dry don't have as many cattle on the ranch incomes down. I go to the ranch to spend money. I come home to the office to try to make money. At least that's, that's my perspective. And there's something kind of nice about, you know, like you were talking about before we hit record, you go to the ranch, you go to the farm and you put on your farm clothes. And when you leave the farm, you take off your farm clothes. And that's something that my dad always told me about kind of talked about he said you know you've got your work clothes you put them on you're in your work mindset you take them off and you set them down you can take that part of your brain and shut that part of your brain off for a little bit some of us can and i think that's that's an important thing to be able to do as an agricultural producer is be able to is to not have your whole identity and everything you are wrapped up in the ranch or the farm and that be your life 24 7 I know I'm not saying that's wrong I'm just saying that there's when I come home from work and I take off my work uniform it just it changes my mindset and maybe that's a carryover from the military too no that makes sense have you ever heard people talk about if you need to be motivated in the mornings because you're struggling and a lot of people struggle in the morning they there's like it's like they wake up in a state of depression but there's this trick that you can play on your mind. If you wake up and put on your shoes, your mind thinks, oh, it's time to get it's time to get after it. 
it's the first thing you do. And, and I don't do that, but I've had people tell me they do that to trick their mind. They put themselves, essentially, they're, it's like I'm putting myself in my, my work clothes. Like my mind sees that I have shoes on and we need to be doing something. As opposed to walking around in your, you know, barefoot or whatever in your house shoes in that state of, I don't want to call it depression, although it very well could be. But your mindset's not the same as when you have your shoes on. Just like me, mine, you get me out to that shop. You get me up in the morning, get me through my inside stuff, and you get me out to that shop in my clothes, my work clothes, my long sleeve shirt, my backwards hat, my blue jeans. And, and I'll tell you, I don't want to take a nap like I did 30 minutes before when I just got up trying to get my coffee or do whatever. Now it's like, hey, what can we get done today? And so I see what exactly what you're saying about having that outfit on. Like, what outfit are you wearing? Well, if I'm out there and I'm in that one, I'm ready to roll. When I get out of that and I come in here, I can feel it. I It's just a whole different, what do you call that? Like an aura? Is that the right word? It's a whole different uh, environment. And your body and your mind especially, they they know it and they change with it. For me, it's it's what's on my feet makes sense what's what's on my feet like if i come home and i put on my house take off my work boots put on my house shoes my brain's just like no nah, we ain't going outside we don't need yeah. to go out there it's dirty out there you don't want to get your socks dirty <laughs> you don't want to get these nice nice house shoes dirty if i if i want to make sure that i get out to the yard later and do something in the yard after i get home i don't put on my house shoes i put on my tennis shoes got an old ragged pair of tennis shoes that i could just slide in and out of don't have to even mess with the laces those are my i'm still going to get stuff done shoes or i might go to town later shoes yeah it ain't over just yet we still got these babies on <laughs> we that's hadn't right. resorted to the house shoes yet that's yeah, right makes sense so you, know, you said something a minute ago let me can i let me, i want to back up you said something a minute ago that really that makes so much sense i i go to the farm to yes, spend money because it definitely takes money. But I I don't I don't go over there to make money. I go over there to do the work. I come back home here to make the money. And I've never really looked at it like that. But you you don't. And somebody's going to argue with us. That's fine. They're wrong anyway. <laughs> they're wrong. They're gonna they're gonna nitpick what we're saying here. But you're not making money at the farm because you're you're actually working at the farm you're making money when you stop the work and you put on your the salesman hat really which a lot of traditional farmers i have found struggle to be a salesman they are great at the farm work but they're not great at the like what how can i make money off of this farm work that i'm doing and i'll tell you I may be jumping way far ahead, but it seems like a pretty good place to throw this in there. In October of 2019, I looked at my wife and I said, we're done selling live animals. Because to me, it didn't make any sense for a small guy. What I mean by that is I don't have a lot of cattle. I'm not running a hundred head. I don't have 400 acres, but it made no sense for a guy, a farmer my size, to sell cattle, a farmer selling to other farmers. If you have pot loads, 
that's a different story. But if you're in between and like you're not the pot load guy, you probably ought to consider selling beef. And I equate it to this. Chick-fil-A does not sell chicken sandwiches to Popeye's. That's farmers selling to farmers. At some point, somebody's got to go up there and say, I want a chicken sandwich. That and I, In October of 2018, 2019, I'm sorry, I told my wife, we're done selling live animals. We're going to, we're processing them and we're going to sell, we're going to sell packaged meat because I see no sense in us trying to make a profit selling our measly animals at a livestock auction to other farmers. Changed my whole ball game. Yeah. Well, at the barn, you're competing against everybody else and you don't know what their input costs are. Hopefully you know yours. I'm sure you do. You sound like a smart enough guy. Um, but you're competing against guys that oftentimes are taking advantage of some sort of subsidized feed product. You know, whether we're talking about, you know, DDG, corn, soy. I mean, a lot of these things are supported with crop insurance with programs. Okay. You know, you can feed. I, I say this all the time. I'm sure you've heard me say it. You can feed condition and fertility into anything. And I'm, I'm curious as to how you figured that out in 2019 and, and, and what your big signals were. Cause I think a lot of us, you know, have kind of started to figure it out over the last three, four years, not just because of COVID. Um, I figured out it was probably around that same time. I figured out that every cow calf guy that was taking their animals past 400, 400 pounds was giving money away. Like the, the two places to exit the cow calf business are at 400 pounds 45 to 60 days weaned with two rounds of vaccine. That's going to get you pretty good money in any barn, any country, any day, right? Or sell it in the box direct to a customer. If you're anywhere over, if you take that animal past 400 pounds, you're losing money on it because you're competing against a subsidized production scheme. It's, that's how I see it. Yeah, that makes good sense. But a, a lot of folks have a hard time uh, maybe cutting that off at 400 pounds or and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not the, I'm, I wouldn't call myself a cattleman, although I've learned a lot from mistakes I've made. So I do have a little knowledge, but it's hard to sell it in the box unless you are in farming because it's your business. And I think that's probably where a lot of people they they can't do it because they're they're not looking at it. Why do we not look at our farm as our business? I I don't know. I honestly, Nick, I don't know. I have been taught since I was very young to look at the ranch and the land as a business. So my dad went to ranching for profit for the first time in 1988. I was like 10 years old. So he's coming home and he's talking about, you know biological and ecological cycling and mineral cycles and rotation grazing. And I'm just like, yeah, what, whatever, that's kind of cool. So I, I've never, never been bought into like the conventional side of things. And part of the, part of the thinking from ranching for profit that dad always taught me is kind of like we were just talking about, you go to the ranch to spend money, you come to the office to make money. That's the difference between Whitby and Watby, W-I-T-B, working in the business, and Watby, mm -hmm. working 
on the business. Working on the business is what we do in the office. Working in the business is going out, you know, working, working the animals in the corral, doing the fence work, maintaining the water systems, right? All that stuff costs money. It's the what be that makes you more money. And now one of the time, one of the ways dad always explained it to me is the difference between $10 an hour work and $100 an hour work. You can go to the ranch and you can do the physical labor of going around and doing the fences. Okay. You doing that, that generate, you know, that that's a value of $10 an hour to the business. Or I can go to the office and I can generate revenue at a hundred dollars an hour and sometimes even have a thousand dollar an hour idea. Those are few and far between. I'll tell you right now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, but we go to the office to do the hundred dollar an hour work. Okay. So we can afford to do the $10 an hour work. Vast majority, yeah. vast majority of my revenue is made right here. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that, so I've always looked at it as a business and I've always tried to operate my operation as a business that has to generate profit. And there's, I think there's a lot of farm operations that, you know, are very heavily subsidized with town jobs, with day jobs and, and with government money and people don't, I think the sad truth is, Nick, I think a lot of people don't, a lot of farmers these days aren't self-aware of the degree to which they're subsidized and the degree of control at which everybody else, i.e., let's just say the crop insurance man, the banker, the crop consultant, the agronomist, and the seed salesman, those are really the guys running your operation. I, I think there's a lot of folks that don't run their that don't run a farm as a business that that they're just there they're just there to be a conduit to pass through federal subsidy dollars to the to the folks that are farming the farmers. Yeah, you're probably right. They're afraid. They're not even. Maybe I was going to say they're afraid to manage the numbers because if you if you you know what gets measured. It's managed. And if you're not managing or measuring your numbers, looking at what, how much am I spending to, you know, to do this, then when you, you don't realize, okay, you know, me and my wife, which my wife and I don't subsidize the farm. We do not. uh, If the farm can't afford to buy it, the farm doesn't buy it. That does not mean that we don't every now and then, and we haven't in quite a while, that being, probably a couple of years, give the farm a loan. It's usually a small one and it always gets paid back. But people don't do that. They just don't look at it like that. And they continue to, to you would call that subsidizing it. I mean, you're, you're off the farm jobs paying for your, for your farm. And then, and I tell people this all the time, what happens is when you find out how much money you're paying that farm, you quit. When all you have to do is manage it and measure the money that you're spending and where's the money going to come from. And it, and they're, I think they're afraid to, cause they look at those animals as pets and they're like, I'm going to take care of my pets. You're going to take care of your pets until you realize that they're sucking your bank account dry. The one from your off the farm job. And when you do find that out, not only will you hate those pets, but you're going to get rid of them. 
all you have to do is pay attention to your numbers and you have to be disciplined. So let's just say that because you have to be disciplined and we weren't always. But a lot of people, they can't do that. Maybe it's because they're live animals and they look at it like pets. I don't know. I, I don't always understand it. I think people are funny and they get in love. They fall in love with their cows or they fall in love with a breed or an idea. And they won't listen to to anything negative about it, about their system, about what they think is awesome. And they continue to double down and double down and double down. And we end up in a situation kind of like we're in, like, you know, we got to keep planting corn, soybeans and, and cotton wall to wall, tear out more tree rows, farm up the waterways. We, you know, corn, cotton, and soybeans got to grow them all. Got to feed the world. I'm, I get really, really sick of big commodity farmers saying we got to feed the world when they're living in a food desert and their community is starving and sick and full of chronic disease and cancer. Like, you're going to tell me that you're going to load up that sprayer full of Roundup and go spray 125 feet of whack, 15 miles an hour. All this antibiotics, all this pesticide, herbicide, and that doesn't have an effect on the health of your area. Like, I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it how, how some of these guys, how a lot of these folks just can't see that the system is related, that what happens what happens to the soil happens to us because we're all the same. We're all made of the same stuff. We're all the same, you know, ancient stardust just put together in slightly different and more interesting ways. You know, we came from the soil and we'll go back there and we share the soil's fate. We can't keep, you know, can't keep reinforcing this feed the world mentality when we're not even feeding a community. Like, Arkansas, you guys are probably in the same situation. Here in Kansas, we import like 95% of the food we eat. I mean, we're in the top five beef. We're generally the number one wheat producer. Um, you know, we're no slouch in corn. We're no slouch in soybeans. We produce a lot of food in Kansas. But what of it is human edible? Like, we're not feeding the world if you're growing, if you're not growing a crop that can be eaten by a human. White commodity soybeans, you can't eat that. Number two dent corn, you can't eat that. So what are we really growing? Are we really feeding the world? And to kind of even go, go a little farther off the rails on this. When, when we've got all these, you know, let's just say popular social media accounts and in, you know, farm influencers that we see on social media and they're saying, we got to feed the world. We got to feed the world. Man, you're not even feeding your community. Oh, no, it's almost, it's like, uh, well, I shouldn't say, uh, maybe I shouldn't say that, but you're right. You're, you're not even, you're not even feeding your community, but saying that we got to feed the world feels good. So it's what you say, but you're, you're going you're you're jumping so far out there. You're jumping over so many things. It's like going from from peak to peak, and you can't go from peak to peak, and you know that. But they say it. I believe they say it because it it it's the feel good thing to say. It's definitely not. It's not feasible. You're not even feeding the few people that live around you, and you and you're gonna 
you're going to say we need to feed the world. Yeah. You're missing it, buddy. I, I wish I could find the receipts for this, but I read it, saw it somewhere that between 80 and 85% of the world is fed from subsistence farmers and subsistence farming techniques. 80 to 85%. So, okay, we're going to feed the world with our massive, awesome, wonderfully efficient production system that we have in the United States. We're going to feed the world. 15 to 20% of them. And that 15 to 20% of the world that we're, quote, feeding, they're already in development. They're already in developed countries and we're feeding them. What are we feeding them? We're feeding them ultra-processed and hyper-processed, quote, food. I mean, some of that stuff is... Yeah, yeah exactly. Food, quote, food. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, gosh, there's been so many articles come out that I've seen in, in just the last, well, I'll call it 60 days. I mean, The Guardian UK, BBC. Um, I haven't seen any US me U.S. media outlets pick it up. But they're actually like Guardian and BBC. They're talking about drawing links from hyper-processed food to things like Alzheimer's, heart disease. Oh, oh, the best one is they're linking hyper-processed food to diet to adult onset diabetes now. You know, I read a book recently called "Let's Eat Right to Get Fit," and I have it. Uh. I don't know exactly where it is, but the, the lady, phenomenal book. She talks about what exactly what you're saying, and they've done studies on these very remote countries that are living off the land without all the garbage that we're putting on it. Their teeth are strong. They don't stink because of the food they're eating. They don't have the diseases that we have because they're not they haven't delved into the junk that we're eating. They're still living off the, uh, what would you call it? the the pure land that they have. It's been what do you call that? Unadulterated. Yep. Yeah. They're not having the problems that we have. Now let me say this too. I think that book was written in the seventies, so some of those countries may not exist like they did when she wrote this book. But she talks about the things that cause uh, some of the stuff that we're dealing with. You know, you haven't always had. Uh, Oh, what was one of the things she said? You haven't always had, uh, was it, a, maybe she said a gluten problem. You haven't always had a, a, a diabetes problem. Uh, we haven't always had bleached flour and bleached sugar. And so there are things that go with that that just, I don't know. I'm, I'm like, like you said, I, I'm confident a lot of the diseases that we deal with they're not going away because we're not going to change our food source. If we want those to go away, we have to change the things that are causing them. And although I would like for us to, I do believe that would be like me saying we've got to feed the world. Well, let me start with myself and my family here. We're not going to eat the bleached flour anymore. We're going to stay away from the dot. Don't get me started, Brian. Oh, no, get, I can't. Get I can't. I can't sell an unwashed egg that's not been refrigerated. But you can put high fructose corn syrup in my food. I, I can't sell an unwashed egg. I can't butcher a cow myself and sell that meat 
but you can put red dye in Gatorade and sell it to me. You can put yellow dye, which is probably worse than red, although I could be wrong there. I'm not positive. I do know yellow is not good for you, uh, but I don't think any of those dyes are. You can put that in the soap I'm using to wash my face, but I can't sell that beef that I butchered, on, that I grew, that I butchered. It's amazing. Golly, you got me started. <laughs> oh, I, I think that I, I'm with you. I think the rules food safety rules, uh, the rules about what, you know, companies are allowed to sell us. There's some problems. I can buy a Coke from the store, but I can't sell you a gallon of milk straight from my farm. You've got to be kidding. Yeah. That's where we are. Yeah. And that's, that's really wrong. I mean, and there's so much nutrition wrapped up in that bottle of raw milk right out of your cow. Oh my gosh versus all the stuff in a bottle of coke that i mean high fructose corn syrup sugar caramel color i mean since we're talking about coke like it's it's pretty common knowledge like there's an a coke the coca-cola corporation has a specific license from the u.s government to be able to import one of their ingredients that's otherwise illegal don't go to them for a sponsor <laughs> I don't even drink Coke, brother. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't coffee, either. Coffee and water. I mean, if, if the Don Pablo Coffee Company wants to reach out, like yeah, Don Pablo Coffee Company, Burke Brands down in Florida, that's all the coffee that I drink. Like, it's half the price of Black Rifle, and that's the, that's a lot of the reason why. <laughs> Not saying there's anything wrong with Black Rifle. Like Evan, you know, hit me up. I'm I'm open for some sponsorship yeah. too. Dad. You no, know, the coffee and water. That's about all I drink anymore. And I put real heavy cream in my coffee. Not proud of it, but we get it from Dylan's. I mean, I wish I, I, I wish I had a dairy next door and I could get real raw heavy cream. But the dairy's kind of a kind of a haul. And they're about twice as expensive as grocery store cream. Yeah. Um so I, maybe we'll, maybe that will change, but, uh, yeah, real, real raw, heavy cream. I don't even put sugar in my coffee. I don't even think we, nope. I don't even think we have sugar in the house. Um, and Tanya last night was just wondering if I forget what she was thinking about making. Um, oh, she wanted to make sand plum jelly. So sand plums are kind of a local delicacy around here, you know, wild plant, um, and I'm going to say that maybe only like two out of five years, we'll get a good crop of plums. And it looks like we're going to have a good crop of plums. We didn't have any last year because of a late freeze. Didn't have a year before that because of a late freeze. Didn't have any the year before that. No, we did have them. We had plums in 2020 and that was the last year we had plums. So the sand plum is fairly tart, like rather tart. And most people kind of make it with about 43 pounds of sugar. And she's thinking about trying to figure out a way to either make it with honey or make it with maple syrup. So we don't yeah. use refined white sugar. You know, we've, uh, we have a Carly. I don't know if you've heard me talk about Carly. Carly helps me with the farm and she makes our, uh, Kelly and I, she makes our bread 
using local honey or sometimes we get our hands on maple syrup from a buddy of mine from the Air Force. So I was in the Air Force. He retired. I didn't. I got out early. He bought a maple tree farm in Pennsylvania and he mails me uh, maple syrup during whatever season. And she will make our bread out of that. No sugar, uh, stone ground wheat flour. And it's funny. My wife will tell you the two most important groceries we have in this house are raw milk and, and bread. But it's so worth it. When I eat that bread, I know there's not the the refined sugar and the milk. And I go through two gallons of that a week. Just It's just knowing. It's like, what do you want for dessert? A glass of milk. Knowing it's healthy. I, it's good and it's healthy. Unadulterated. Uh, expensive. But nonetheless, it's good. Okay. It's expensive. But what are you not paying for? Exactly. I mean, is it expensive when you go to your neighbor's house that has the cow and you're paying him $10 a gallon for milk? I mean, is that anywhere close to where you guys are at down there? Eight oh, yeah. 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 That's about where it's at. I, mean, I think eight to 10, maybe up to 12 in some parts of the country are pretty much average for, you know, raw milk on the farm. That guy's getting that money. Like he doesn't have to send a big percentage of it off to the, to the, you know, plant that processed it. The guy that trucked it doesn't have to get a cut. No, all that money stays on the farm. And you know, when you go to Walmart, not you, when you listener, somebody goes to Walmart or Dylan's or, you know, whatever your grocery store choice is. And there's that gallon of milk there for five, six bucks. The farmer ain't getting five, six bucks. I mean, I, I don't even know what wholesale milk price is. I, well, they sell it by the hundred weight, like $10, 10, 11, 12, 13, $14, a hundred weight. Like that's, that's the price that the farmer gets for that gallon of milk. That's at Dylan's versus what you're paying, what he's going to get going and buying it on the farm makes all the difference in the world. Now, and like I said earlier, um, you know, 400 pounds for the cow calf guy, you need to start, you need to start really finding your exit strategy at 400 pound calf weight or figuring out how you're going to take that animal all the way to the box. Anywhere in between in there, you're fighting the commodity production system that's often subsidized and producing below cost. So just different perspectives. We've got to... We have to learn to think, and I say this in my videos, we've got to think outside the pasture. You've got to. Otherwise, you're you're no different than anybody else. I learned early on, and I learned this from Greg Judy. When I start talking to a farmer who tells me that they're just breaking even, I stop listening. Because I'm not interested in breaking even. I you and you've got to you've got to be different. And you, if you think about it, and I think you may have heard me say this the other day, it seems like you may have been there. There's a reason why Walmart made it big. Chick-fil-A made it big. Amazon made it big. And it's not because they wanted to do things like everybody else was doing. They just thought outside the box. And so we have to think outside the box. We, we have to know, okay, if it's typical for a farmer to carry their, their calf until when? What's the average, you think? 
Oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, I suppose a lot of guys like to sell around 550, 600, and there's guys that like to take them to eight. Okay. Well, well, there are a lot of farmers who will do just that because that's what everybody else does. And, and Kit Farrell mentions this quite a bit. It's not the size of the animal. It's how many hoofs you can put on the ground, right or wrong. Yep. But, but people, but tr traditional, or you said a different word earlier, uh, started with a C. You called it, it wasn't a traditional farmer, conventional. Is that what you yep. said? Probably. They all, they're afraid to think differently. And you and I, you know this as well as I do. They'll make fun of us in a heartbeat. I don't care. Make fun of me all you want while you break even. I'm not interested in breaking even. Yep. Make fun of me all you want while you're going there to the to the mailbox to collect your crop insurance check. Oh, that's don't, right. That's right. Tell me about how you're feeding the world and how you're making all the decisions on your farm when the crop insurance guy came out and said, Yeah, your wheat's not worth a crap. If you want to get paid for it, you got to farm it up and plant Milo. Who's making the decisions on your farm? That's right. That's exactly right. You know, I want to change subjects kind of for just a second. I choose not to get paid for my social media. I don't put all my eggs in one basket because I don't want anyone to have that much control over what I'm doing. I want the control to be right here. Nick, you know what? If you don't want to do Hypothetically, if you don't want to do TikTok anymore, it ain't a big deal. You're not getting money from them anyway. If they decide, hey, we, we don't want you anymore because you're you're farming and we're against that, then no big deal. I'm going to keep on trucking. If if that if Tyson says, hey, we're taking your chicks away, which I don't have Tyson chickens, that's not the farming I do. But there are a lot of farmers out there. Have you ever read The Meat Racket? Oh, yeah. One of my favorite books. <laughs> I do not want someone to have that much control. Over, I don't want them to have control over me, period. Although you do have, you deal with control a little bit, but not that much. And so I will not put myself in that position. I have a guy, I was going to call him a buddy, but we're not buddies. Uh, but he told me one time, I don't do business with anyone who's going to be more than 10% of my annual income because I don't want to be worried about losing them. And I thought, well, that's kind of crazy. But if you think about it, and there's probably a different way to go about that, but I see his point. Yeah. I don't want to raise, I don't want to raise, like, I don't want, I don't sell anything. Uh, what do you call it? When you sell to commercially, um, I sell direct to consumer. I don't let any business come in here and buy all my eggs or all my milk or all my ground beef because I, for one, they're not paying me enough. And two, Whenever they decide they don't want to buy from me anymore and they cut me off, what, what, wait a minute, what? Exactly. What, and so I'm not doing that. I'm, I refuse to give up the control that you were just talking about in the hands of others. I'm not going to the mailbox thinking, okay, is my farm going to stay afloat this month? Can well, we take a break for just a second? Yeah, you bet. So funny story here. My mom showed up unexpectedly and my windows open. <laughs> And she comes walking over to my window and she starts talking. I don't know if you heard her. Nope. And I tried to send her a text and I was still trying to listen to you and send her a text. And then I noticed that she wasn't like, she wasn't paying attention to my text. And I thought, mom, come on. I'm, and then I thought, just text, I'm texting my wife real quick. And so I'm trying to pay attention. And I, I text my wife and I'm like, 
hey, my mom's outside. Can you help me out here? And I realized the text that I was sending to my mom that said, hey, I'm recording. I never hit send. So she didn't know it. And so I'm thinking, what the heck? What am I doing? I don't even know what to do. So give me one second to tell her, hey, I can't talk, which she she rarely pops in like this. And especially when my window's open. Yeah, you bet. I'll, I'll just pause it and uh, I'll go take a leak too. So we'll just take a take a little break and come right back. Okay, sounds good. All right, we're back. Everything all right? Everything's good. Those unplanned interruptions. It used to be, I, I used to not be okay with taking a break. Like there were, there were some that I sat through here like 45 minutes and I just eyeballs, eyeballs were turning yellow, back teeth were floating. I can't do that anymore. It's all yeah. right. <laughs> I, I heard Joe Rogan take a break one time. He's like, man, I really got to pee. Can we take a break? And I'm like, well, if Joe Rogan can do it, I can do it. That's right. If Joe Rogan can do it, you bet. Uh, so what were we talking about? We were talking about um, we were talking about feeding the world. We were talking about um, talking about production systems and who's really in charge on the ranch or farm. Yeah, that's right. Who, who's giving up control so that you maybe have some income, but then then you you lose that source and all of a sudden you have no income which is something I don't do. I don't sell what's it called, Brian, when like it retail? Like I don't sell retail? No. Wholesale. That's not the word. Wholesale. Wholesale. Yeah, I'm not selling to somebody who's who's reselling. Although I mean, I wouldn't sell. Matter of fact, I've cut off. I I put limits on certain products before to prevent that sort of structure taking place where somebody just wants to come in and buy all my eggs or all my ground beef. Uh, I just tell them, I just flat out tell them no, or I'll set up my website where they can't buy that many. You know, wasn't long ago we had kind of an egg craze. Yeah. And I just went on my website and changed it where you could buy one dozen. And then what I did was when a customer, normal customer, or let's just say a, a return customer, when they made a purchase, I, we would just reach out to them and say, hey, do you want more than the one dozen eggs that you added to your cart? And what they said was, yeah, we just couldn't add more. No, the reason you couldn't add more is because we're protecting those eggs for people just like you who buy from us all the time and not letting these one-timers show up because of the egg craze and buy them all. And it really, our, I don't know that our customers ever realized that's what we were doing, but that's exactly what we were doing. How much you sell your eggs for? It depends. <laughs> so does it depend uh, on when or does it depend on who? Yes. <laughs> so right now there right now, if you were to place an order, so we do a free delivery Friday thing or we a delivery on Fridays, and we sell throughout the week. Some people pick their orders up, some we deliver to. We're really growing, trying to grow our Friday delivery. So if you have a $50 or greater delivery, I'm sorry, a $50 or greater order, delivery is free in our area of Benton and Bryant. If it's $100 or more, it's free delivery for anywhere from Hot Springs to Little Rock. We're trying to grow that. Anybody can pick up. We process orders on Thursdays. They can pick up anytime after the order is processed. Those folks pay $7 a dozen. We do a farmer's market on Saturday. Those folks pay $8 a dozen. 
more work to get that stuff there. They pay a little more. And Brian, they don't care. I'd, and I'm sure that there's probably about seven or eight people that are listening to this that just threw their hat and said, there's no way I'd pay seven or eight dollars for eggs. And my response is not everybody is my customer and I'm okay with that. I think that's the right answer. I also think that if people aren't complaining, your price is too high. It's not high enough. <laughs> that's true. That's true. You know, there's a saying, if you're, if you're swamped, you're not charging enough, which is a lot of times why, you know, people complain about, and I'm not one of them, but they'll complain about maybe the price of admission somewhere. Let's just say a theme park admission might be hypothetically $125 for the day. And people are like, you've got to be kidding me. Okay, well, let me tell you something. If it's only $75, you can't move around in there because it's too crowded. They have to do that for a reason. And so uh, it's just like with our eggs. There's a reason why eggs are $7 anytime other than at that market. For one, that market, man, I got to prep for that on Friday. I got to get up at five. I, I, got, I pay somebody just for me to be at the market. I have to pay somebody to do the chores at the house, at the farm, and I have to pay to be at that market. And it takes me about probably a total of six hours just to for the work for the market. That includes being there, but about six hours. Yeah, you're going to pay me $8 a dozen. And you know what? Sell out every time. Every time. So are farmer's markets a good continuous market for you? Is it more? A lot of the folks that I've talked to, farmer's markets for them are, are almost a loss leader from a time and, and sales perspective. Yeah. But for them, it's an advertising thing. Exactly. I'm no different. It's okay. marketing. Yep. I use the farmer's market to grow my Little Rock delivery. That's the reason I'm there. And so if you think about it, man, if we really have to, and I had to do this too, and I still do have to change the way we think about things. So, all right, well, Nick, you're probably breaking even at best going to that farmer's market, even when you have a really good day, which we do, we do well there, but I know the reason I'm there is for marketing. Okay. Well, could you not spend that money somewhere else and, and market some other way? Yeah, I could, except the farmer's market pays for itself in marketing because you're making money while you're there, right? Yeah. Okay. So you, let's just say, let's say I made $800 in the three hours I'm at that market. Okay. That's three hours of marketing, 800 bucks. It paid for itself to market because I brought in the $800 and let's say I broke even. Let's say you don't do that market and you just put $800 somewhere else in marketing. Now you're negative 800, correct? Exactly. That's why market you're negative 800 until you start getting a return but you have to dip you have to dig in somewhere to get 800 bucks to do that 800 marketing we're at the farmer's market they give you 800 and you basically are turning around and giving it right back but you got to market so it was it was paid for there's probably a better word for that but it, it it's marketing period. Well, i mean if if one out of ten people that walks by your booth stops how many of the other nine see your name and your phone number and will come back later or will come back to your website? I think that's that's the question 
I think with farmers markets is, you know, how much of this foot traffic is just looking at my signage and they're going to contact me later. Yep. That, That's right. And I wonder about that, you know, our farmers markets around here. I mean, have you ever been out to Western Kansas? I've driven through it, unfortunately. <laughs> what part? Uh, well, I've gone from Salinas to Denver. Okay, yeah. So down I seventy, you, you, you. Then you understand how sparsely populated Western Kansas and Eastern Colorado are. So Do people live there. I live there. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, anyway. Uh, well. So within two hour drive, I have a half a million. I have a half a million people within a two hour drive, two hour radius. You're probably a significant multiple of that within two hours. Um, so access to markets here and just the number of people that are coming to a farmer's market to get to a big farmer's market. I mean, I'd, I'd have to drive almost two hours. I'd have to go to one of the big farmer's markets in Wichita. Um, there's a pretty good one in Hutch. Um, Pratt's been okay. Our local one here in Medicine Lodge. I'm not even sure it's going to happen this year. Um, I don't, I'm not even sure the one in Pratt's going to happen this year because the, the the ladies that were taking care of each one of them, um, the lady that was taking care of the one up north in Pratt, doing a lot of work there, Um she has to take care of an elderly family member. So they've been remodeling their house and they didn't put up their, they didn't do hardly anything in the greenhouse this year. And the lady that does the one in medicine lodge, um, she's just kind of tired of it and doesn't really want to do it a whole lot anymore. And I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is like, we're, we're still at the place in a lot of these small rural communities where we're stuck in that feed the world mindset you know, wall-to-wall commodity crops and not actually grow anything, not actually grow a product or a crop that's edible for people. And it's sad because, you know, we're an agricultural community, but we can't even have a farmer's market. How wild is that? We're an agricultural community with no farmer's market. Like it, that almost shouldn't even be that's almost an oxymoron, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It, it would take somebody dedicated, heading it up, giving it steam, like the one we, the, the one I attend, uh, which, which, I mean, we're in, we're in smack dab Little Rock at this market, which, you know, although Little Rock is a big town, it's definitely not a big city. But we're a farming state and we have, I'll tell you, the reason that market does so well, and it's not big. People think, and I was the same way, Brian, people think if you're not big, you're not making money. That is so wrong. That is, you've got to change your thinking. And until you change your thinking, not you in general, until you change your thinking, you're no different than anyone else. And if you want the same result as everyone else, well, then think like everyone else. This market is small. Somebody asked me yesterday how many vendors were at this market. And I want to say I counted up. There were maybe 15. 15, Brian. 15. 
ask me how many people walk through that market as a customer or a patron, you can't count them all. Thousands. There are so many people that come through there every single Saturday. It's 300. It's all year long. They do not. This market does not take a break. But let me say this, too. This goes back to somebody being dedicated and heading this thing up. Every vendor there is selling something they either make themselves or I guess that could be the same or grow. This is they are they are particular about what they allow you to bring. I've been to other markets before and it's like a flea market. It's like kind of a everybody sets up their yard sale. Not this one. There are only around 15 vendors and it is phenomenal at how many people show up. And I believe it's because someone was dedicated enough to head it up and say, you know what? You're welcome to be a vendor here if it's something you make or you grow. And those patrons appreciate that. It's it's that person that coordinates it, that's there consistently to make sure that farmer's market is a success. And I think another key to it is, like you said, maybe there does need to be a little bit of gatekeeping so you don't have, you know, 20 booths in the farmer's market and 15 of them are all selling soap. Yeah. I mean, did you make that? Yeah. Did you just buy a bunch of ingredients and cook it in your kitchen? Okay, cool. I mean, is there anything special about your soap? Like, okay, so... um. This is a this is a future podcast going to come out. I haven't done this interview yet, but I've talked to him and we're we're going to do it. But my friend Justin Harris, um, after this done, you might go check him out. Wild ass hemp farm, wild ass soap. Um, so this guy's got actually got a cool story. And I don't want to spoil a lot of it, but he gets, um, he get like they grow their own hemp, and they get they make the soap, but it's not like they're buying the fats for the soap. I mean, off the market, they go to another friend of mine, Mike Calicray, and get the rendered pork lard and rendered tal- beef tallow from his packing plant. And they just buy it bulk and they turn it into soap and sell the soap. Like, okay, now this is something I can get on board with. Like, you're taking a waste product from another guy that's slaughtering on farm and trying to build local food systems and you're keeping that locally. And you're generating more value with it with a product that you can ship everywhere. I think that's pretty cool. So like being able to stack on top of that. So like, okay, make soap from, you know, if you, if he's set up selling soap at the farmer's market, he could be right next to the guy that's selling him the tallow and he's selling beef. Be like, yeah, you want to know where we get our tallow? That guy right there. Without him, we can't make our soap. And I, I, I think relationships like that are kind of cool. Um, but like a, a lot of times what you see at farmers markets, a lot of them did be kind of become a flea market. Like we don't, we don't need this crap here. Like mm-hmm. farmers market. If you farmed it, if you grew it and you made it, bring it to the farmers market. If it's a, if it's a bug that you put under glass, no, maybe take that to the flea market. Like that, that doesn't yeah. belong here. Yeah. Heavy yard sale. Yeah, yeah, something like yeah. Buy get you a booth at one of those flea markets and do that. I, I get discouraged when I stop at a farmer's market, only to learn that it's not really farmers selling their products. 
it's discouraging. You turn and you leave quick, really. You you do. When you get to one like where I'm at, very fortunate. I even turned these people down the first year they called me up. And they were telling me how they're set up and where they're set up. I thought, well, that's just, that's lame. That ain't going to work. Boy, was I wrong. Huh. Uh, but when you get, when you, when you show up at one like where I'm at, and it's just farmer after farmer selling the stuff that they grow or raise or, or make, it's you, not only do you spend your money, but you visit, you visit all of them. You know, there's, I was actually on Saturday. I, they moved a lady who used to be next to me. They moved her down to the end. And she was a little discouraged that they had moved her. Well, and I got a little break during the market and I walked down there and I said, so how, what's the crowd like down here? And she, you know what she told me? Way better. The exact same. Because those patrons go from one end to the other and normally back again. So it doesn't matter because they know, they know what those booths are. They know what those booths are about. They know what that market's about. It's not a flea market. They appreciate it and they want to see everybody there. It does. It takes dedication. It takes somebody leading it to be for it to be like that. And it's not a problem that we're going to solve any time on this podcast, but I, I would hope that somewhere that there's incentive structures and okay, where do those incentive structures come from? And what am I talking about? Like, what are the incentives for somebody to put together and organize a farmer's market? I, I, I'm just kind of generally asking as a, as an overall question, you know, what, what motivators would there be for a person to say, Hey, this community needs a farmer's market. I'm going to take it upon myself to organize that and put that together. Having known some, having known some folks that were kind of involved with it, it seems to be like that's a, that's a thankless job that doesn't really pay a whole lot. And maybe that's part of the problem. But then again, you know, it, so I'm a libertarian, right? I do not believe in big government. I, if, if there's a solution to a problem, the solution is not more government, more spending and more government jobs like that, that that's the last thing that I want to look at in, in my mind is some kind of a governmental solution to a problem. But how do you get people to participate in a system like that? How do you get people to want to participate in a farmer's market how do you create a structure to where there is some longevity with a person that will put together a farmer's market that they're going to have some security in that position and want to be there for a while and make sure it's a success it should that be a function of government or should that be a function of community leadership which i guess community leadership is just really another form of government anyway I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm rambling. Well, you rambled onto something pretty good there. Here's why. So at one time we were doing four markets on a weekend. We did three on a Saturday. We did one on a Sunday. Ugh. The one, the, the, the two markets that had an extraordinary amount of patrons were not run by the city. The one out of those four, the one that was run by the city is the worst one. 
Okay. The one that's run by a non-governmental agency, actually they're, 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 the one that's run by the dedicated person is by far the best one, by far. And I'll tell you, it's run by a dedicated person. It's, it's on the church grounds in, in a, mm, what would you call this? Maybe prominent part of Little Rock, although it's not the most extravagant part of Little Rock. It is a prominent part of Little Rock. The church backs that dedicated person. She's a member of that church. She has several people that they all, they're kind of a team, although she's the leader. They have this team that's really a leadership team for this market, and they are backed 100%. I say 100%. It's evident that church backs them. They're members of that church, but that church backs them. That is the best market of those four. And one, another one of those four markets is actually in Little Rock, probably on a busier street doesn't do quite as well. And then the, the two markets that, that are run by the, let's just call it the government, that are run by the government, they have a nice pavilion, they have the concrete, they have their own parking, and they're, they're the bottom two. They have everything it takes to be a wonderful market. They have one thing in the way. What's that? The government. Okay. <laughs> and I don't mean, and you know this, I don't, I'm not saying the federal government gets in their way. That's not the case. What, what does get in their way is all the rules and regulations and the fact that they, their city government thinks they can motivate their hourly employees to make this market great. And they aren't, and they can't. They're that employee running the, that particular market not doing it because they're dedicated to the, that market. Now that chick up there in Hillcrest, she's doing it because she is dedicated to that market. And probably, probably not making a dime. She's just dedicated to it. They found the right team for the right market and it's working. It's, it's interesting. You, you made that comment about, you know, the government worker has no motivation, no accountability, no buy-in and that's what it takes it takes buy-in it takes emotional buy-in long term like you've got to be the chick that runs the good one she's bought in long term into farmers markets she sees the benefits you know whatever they are to community prosperity local resilience local food systems whatever her motivation is is probably it, it, it's moving things in the right direction but then when you take an hourly employee of government who's not doing that job because they want to do a stellar job in public service, let's face it, most people that work for city or state governments or county governments, you're there because you want the sweet retirement and you want the sweet health plan. Like you're not there because you want to be a public servant. You don't go out and patch potholes on the roads because you think that brings honor and glory to your family name. No, you do that shit for health insurance and retirement benefits. Let's be honest. And as a government worker, like there's two things. There, there's, there's only one thing more permanent than a temporary government program. And that's a permanent government program. 
And on the other side of that coin is once an employee, once a person gets hired into public service, into government, like unless you do something grossly criminally wrong or negligent, you're probably going to retire from that job as long as you do mm-hmm. the absolute bare minimum necessary, which that's another function of government. Government sets the absolute minimum acceptable standard. Like people think mil spec is awesome. No, mil spec is crap. Mil spec is the absolute worst that the government will accept and still pay you for it. So mil spec, maybe not so great, but I digress. You you have to have somebody that's bought into the mission that that's a believer. And I wrote down here, uh, church farmers markets. I, and I can see, I can see how a lot of churches, places of worship are, would be a great place to have a farmer's market, a lots of parking. And what do we need to have a farmer's market? We just need to have a place to do it. We don't need a roof. So we just need mm-hmm. a lot of parking. We need a good way to get in and out. Saturdays are great. I mean, most houses of worship do their thing on a Sunday. Some do it on a Saturday. Well, you know, you can always move that farmer's market day around. But even more to that, like, I got this movie playing in my head of, you know, a preacher in front of his congregation using the scripture to, you know, teaching the scripture and then talking about, you know, that clean, healthy food is important and that we should all be eating good, clean, healthy food and to build a connection back with our farmer. And oh, by the way, farmer's market next Saturday, right here. And this is our coordinator. And it's like, you know, maybe some, this is an idea, right? I'm not a big church guy, but if we need more farmer's markets, maybe that's a good place to start is to start with a church and say, hey, preacher man, let's get your congregation eating better. So more of them make it to heaven. So you spend less time as a group on everybody's healthcare. Let's try to get everybody eating better. And the first step of that, let's do a farmer's market. So let's find somebody from the congregation that's passionate about food, passionate about health, and passionate about the community. I don't know, spitballing, <laughs> brainstorming again. You know, sometimes you, you can sit down and listen to people pray, and th- there's always this one saying that they'll throw in their prayer while when they pray before they eat. And that is, or we ask that you bless this food to the nourishment of our body. And I've taught my boys and even my wife that I cannot sit down over some refined bread and a burger that's loaded with who knows what and some French fries and ask the Lord to bless it to the nourishment of my body. I'm not, I am not, uh, saying that I am limiting my God. But I am saying that there's limit this what he can do to something that's devoid of nutrition. You know, we blame him for a lot of stuff that we bring on ourselves. You said it earlier. We eat a lot of stuff that causes us to have problems. And we continue to eat it. And then we, we put this high fructose corn syrup in our body and then we blame somebody else when we have cancer. Yep. And we sit down and we pray over these donuts, these deep fried donuts made out of refined flour. 
and we ask the Lord to bless it to the nourishment of our body, you will never catch me doing that. Oh, you, you will donut. rarely catch donuts made with enriched white flour, fried in seed oil, and coated with sugar. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's... Bless this to the nourishment of my body, and I can just see God there, like rolling his eyes, thinking, "You are you serious? Are you serious?" Yeah. Now we we do a lot of stuff to ourselves, and then we blame other people. And 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 I'll tell you, you see this a lot too. Uh, we blame God for a lot of stuff that we bring in ourselves. You know, just like death, we shouldn't get into this conversation, Brian. But We're, we talk about it in farming. I recently lost a calf, and and something that came up was if you're going to deal with livestock, you need to learn to deal with dead stock. If you're going to be alive on this planet, you need to learn that at some point you're going to be dead on this planet it's just part of it there's nobody really to blame that one day you're gonna die there's only been <laughs> I, I did a my brother passed away in 2016 of cancer by the way and i did his memorial service and i remember specifically one thing that i told the crowd everybody in this room will die at some point there is nobody sitting in here that will, no one has ever, nor will there ever, will they ever live forever. So don't go blaming somebody else when somebody passes away. This is, this what if you want to live a little bit, then you're going to have to learn to die. Somebody's going to die. We should move on. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about, can we talk about, and we started this earlier, unless you have something else that you wanted to go over. Can we talk about how big doesn't necessarily mean dollars? Sure. I see this guy mowing the bank I, I bank at. He's got a little bitty pickup and a push mower, a weed eater, and a blower. He's probably got a rake in the back of that truck. And he mows all of these branches in my area. And, and I just wonder when I see him, how much more net profit does he have than the people with the big trailers and the fancy logoed shirts and the six, you know, weed eaters down the side of their trailer and two zero turns in there. All of, you know, they have a truck for every crew. I just wonder how much more net profit he has than they do because he realizes I don't, I don't need all that. He's probably getting more area done per man hour of labor. His overheads are you know, going to sound like they're going to be a lot lower. Owner benefit could be about the same. Hours worked, probably definitely less. Stress level, probably much, much, much lower. I would rather work a three-quarter time job by myself and not have any employees than to work a full-time job managing five employees because it's probably about the same money exactly it's it's probably the same and with so much you know the number one reason why people don't want to be in business for themselves is because they don't want to deal with the what the stress and this gentleman who i see mowing these yards mowing these these bank lines it's probably not dealing with the stress. 
he's probably he doesn't have to worry rock. about if one of his crew members wrecked the truck or did somebody sling a rock out because they were mowing the wrong way and hit a window, hit a car driving by or something. And and I used to when people asked me when I, I social media first started and my by all means my social media is not huge, but it is definitely. Um, it, it can be intimate. I have good relationships with these people who tend to follow what I'm doing. And when I first started gaining some traction, people would ask me about the size of my farm. And I was hesitant because my farm is not big. And then I learned that, you know, the average farm is not big. Most farms aren't big. And oh, not the not the main reason but one of the reasons why conventional or traditional farmers continue to buy land, I, I said something there that was that was important. One of the reasons, not the only reason, probably not the main reason, but why they continue to buy this land is because they think they need it because they can't make a profit on a little bit. They need a lot. And, and really, if you can't be responsible with a little bit, you can't be responsible with a lot. And so they think, oh, I can't make a profit on 40 acres. I need 400 or 4,000. And in some cases, they can def there are farmers who definitely make more money with 4,000 acres than they do with 40 acres. I'm not saying that's the case all the time. Although I do believe that is a case a lot of the times where it's like, well, I can't do much on 40 acres. Listen, I got 14 pasture acres. I got, Actually, it's a little less, Brian. 14 pasture acres. Here at my house, I have three and a half. And I have learned that I don't need a lot of land to make a profit, a net profit. What I need is a lot of thinking outside the box. And that's what I do. And yes, it would be nice if I lived on the farm. It would be nice if I had a lot more land, mainly for entertainment. I don't know that I could manage a lot of land and even... The, you know, if I did have the 400 acres, I would have all those employees we just talked about that I would have to worry about. Are they, uh, you know, I've heard Joe Salatin talk about big is not necessarily better. Let me tell you how many sledgehammers I have to buy every year because people don't know how to use them <laughs> and how many chainsaws and things like that. And that's exactly what you were getting at. You do not have to be big. And, and that's probably the thing. When I talk to the folks who follow me on social media, I want them. There are three things that I really care about. One, care about their state of mind because I know what it's like to struggle. I know what it's like to get up in the morning and, and like, I need to get my shoes on so that my mind can get out of the gutter and make me feel like I, I at least amount to something and I'm not worthless. So I care about their state of mind. I care about their numbers. I want them to pay attention to their numbers. And most of them don't care to do that. But I want to teach them how much more fun farming is when you know your farm's making some money. And then the other thing I want them to know is you don't have to have a lot. You don't have to have a lot of land to, to be a farmer. You don't have to have a lot of land to be a farmer that makes a, a net profit. So those things are near and dear to my heart. And you'll see that in my content. People think you've got to be big to make money and that is ask the dude mowing those bank lines that's not i guarantee you it's not the case there's a there's a another fellow i know from arkansas 
pretty sure is from Arkansas. Little town called Cotton Plant, Arkansas. Gentleman named Adam Chapel. I listened to him speak a while, uh, a couple years ago. At, I think it was Soil Health U. He'll probably call me and remind me where it was. He said, he passed on a quote that his grandfather told him. He said, it's a lot easier to get big than it is to get small. And, you know, since the 80s in ag, we've been following this get big or get out mentality. And, you know, we're roughly the same age. You're you're just a little younger than I am. That's that's okay. We'll we'll let that one slide. Um, but since the eighties, it's been get bigger, get out. Well, we're on this treadmill of getting bigger and chasing decreasing returns and smaller margins and having to increase turnover with getting more acres in order to make up that shortfall. And I I go back to what Adam said. You don't, yeah, it is easier to get big than it is to get small. You can't tell that guy down the road that's farming 2,000 acres, hey, you should maybe give up half of that, reduce your workload, quit planting corn, and go do some cover crops or, you know, some other kind of crop that might bring in a lot more money, but slightly more labor intensive. It's hard to tell him that when he's got a banker going, hey, buddy, you need to plant 1,800 acres of corn this year because, you know, 250 bushel year yield average and that crop better be insured so if it does fail we get paid who's making the call on your farm Mm -hmm. i mean it if you don't want somebody telling you how to farm why are you letting everybody tell you how to farm that's right and that's right and every time you know we see these farm sizes increase you know, it was a trend through the 50s and 60s and 70s. And you know, when we hit the 80s, everything just hit warp speed. And with every, it, it seems like with every innovation, right, we're reducing labor on the farm, moving those jobs to town in a factory or in an office or in a bank somewhere or to the seed dealer or the tractor repairman. Farms are getting bigger because we've got machinery that can be, oh, they're more efficient. They can replace manpower. Well, that's just other guys you got to pay. I mean, you think about how many people farm the farmers. Your typical corn, wheat, cotton, soybeans guy. You know, he's got to pay John Deere. He's got to pay the, you know, he's got to pay the tractor dealer. He's got to pay the implement dealer. Got to pay the agronomist, got to pay the seed dealer, got to pay the herbicide salesman, got to pay the pesticide salesman, got to pay the fertilizer, got to pay the crop sprayer guy, got to pay the agronomist, got to pay the crop consultant, got to pay the irrigation guy. Oh, and then we're going to give 5% to the bank. Who's running your operation? You know, guys like you and I, okay, where we try to raise everything on the farm sell direct to consumer there ain't anybody between me and my customer and there's very few people between me and what i need to produce my product like get rid of the get those people out of your supply chain Mm -hmm. get people out of your supply chain that are parasites because we don't need them no we don't need them if you start thinking about that which brings the stress to your life and figure out how you can do away with that. A lot of those people you just mentioned will be the first ones that have to go. Yep. 
I mean, if we get off on the wrong foot, and I did this when I first started farming, you get off on the wrong foot, it's hard to get rid of them. You notice over the last three years, all them guys got brand new pickup trucks? Huh. Ain't that funny. Mm -hmm. What are you driving? Exactly. <laughs> Not one of those. That's right. I am driving a 17-year-old diesel pickup. Because <laughs> I yeah. can't afford anything newer. No, and I want something. I want, an, I want the trucks that they're driving. But, you know, that's... I, I see your point there. Those folks uh, stand between you and your net profit. And then they show up and you see what they're driving. And at some point, you've got to tell yourself you paid for that vehicle for them. Yeah. 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 I like I like being small. I do. I want to make more money. I'm not going to lie to you. I want to make more money. I want to do people right. I'll tell you, you... A small farmer like me, you struggle to make a profit on eggs, even selling them at the price I sell them. And what what people who get mad, and there are some who probably get mad because we're selling them for seven or eight dollars a dozen. What they don't realize about eggs, you can you can factor in all these prices, all all of these costs, your inputs. What they don't realize about eggs is none of those inputs change when your egg production drops. And so you're now getting half the amount of eggs with the same amount of inputs and you're charging the same amount because they're not going to let you double the cost of them. It's not how eggs work. It's kind of like, you know, gasoline is probably a nuisance to gas station owners, especially with pay at the pump because gas prices change so often. Well, it went down today. Yeah, well, I paid more for it yesterday when I bought and filled these tanks up out here. And then today, my price drops. And what do you have to do? Sell gas for less than you bought it for. I think it's, it's okay. Margins on gas are, are horrible for a gas station. They make their money when you go in and you pay $2 for a 44-ounce pop that they've got about 12 and a half cents in. At, at the Not even the pop that you open. Because those, I don't know that they're making profit on those. I think where they're making their profit is on uh, that forty-four ounce. You fill it up there. What do you call that thing? A soda fountain type thing. Uh, carbonated, whatever that is. Stuff I don't drink. <laughs> yeah, me yeah, neither. That, yeah, that's where they're making their money. Um, like you go to McDonald's. McDonald's ain't making much money on that double quarter pounder. That's almost at cost. Like they might make a few cents. You're getting screwed on the French fries and drink. That's where that's where McDonald's profit is. Like they're 100 percent in the fries and drink. So let's take that apart for a second. Fries. You basically have potatoes fried in seed oil with salt. Okay, that's cheap. I mean, once you once you plant potatoes, you always have potatoes. I mean, potatoes potatoes grow a lot of places, and then the soda. Like to me, it's just boggles the mind that people will pay that much money for basically flavored sugar water with bubbles in it. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. Yeah. It only adds two fifty to the combo, but that two, $2 and 50 cents of price you're adding to the combo is $2 and 25 cents worth of profit for that chain. You're welcome. That, 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 you're right. And I, I, I'm, I've been guilty of that. 
What's crazy about it, though, is you take that large cup they give you, you fill it full of ice, do an experiment, go get you a, what is it, a 16-ounce can? Is that what they are? Uh, 12. I think most cans are 12. 12-ounce can? It probably won't even hold all that can, and you're just paid two, like, you just paid $3. You know, if you go to a restaurant, you're going to pay $3 for your drink. And you probably aren't going to drink more than the 12 ounce. You're thinking you, the ice is what's getting you. McDonald's isn't screwing you. The ice in that cup is what's screwing you. Yep. Yeah, you're paying a lot of money for some ice. You're getting a little bit of, of soda. Well, somebody you know, told me, this is like, this is like rock and Corey business. But he said, if you can sell them water, and make them think they're buying rock, you're making money. Like, yeah, okay, I get that. I mean, water weighs eight pounds a gallon. If you're selling stuff by the pound, try to sneak a little bit of water in there, especially if water's free. But if you're shipping a product, you want to get all that water out. You want it out. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, okay, local delivery. Yeah, ground beef, steaks, beef boxes. Sure, no problem. Oh, you want to buy my, you know, you're in New York or LA and you want my meat? Yeah, you're probably getting a beef sticker jerky because I don't want to ship water across the country. Yeah. Yep. Right. Um, where 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 are we at here? So somebody asked me recently, how much do I need to be selling my beef for? I don't hate that question, but it makes me cringe when they say, Hey, what do I need to be selling my product for? And I used to ask that question until I've learned, and I did a lot of a lot of my learning comes from reading material from other farmers. I don't always agree with them, but at least I know where they're coming from or how they're thinking. And when people ask me, well, well how much do I need to sell my drink for or whatever it is, my, my ground beef or my eggs or whatever, my first thought is you're asking the wrong question. And maybe they need to know that when they ask that. They don't realize it because at one time I didn't realize it either. But a guy just this morning asked, how much do I need to be selling my grass-fed beef for? Okay, for one, it doesn't matter if it's grass-fed or not at first. What you need to know is, how much do you need to make? Okay, people used to ask me, hey, uh, I'm thinking about going in the insurance business. Um, you got any advice for me? And my, this was what I would tell them. How much money do you need to make in a year? And they might say, let's just say hypothetically, um, $100,000. Okay. That's probably too much, but just for the math, let's say 100000 So then I would break it down to them and tell them how many policies they would need to sell in a month, in a week, in a day, in order to make $100,000 in a year. Uh, I would bet money that none of those folks went into the insurance industry because they, they knew ahead of time what it would take for them to make the net profit that they needed to make, or in that case, maybe the gross profit. So they go into it, especially in farming or any kind of small business, they go into it without ever knowing what it's going to take to make the amount of money that they need to make. Just like with this guy and his grass-fed beef. Okay, my, my, what I told him was, you need to know how much grass-fed beef you have. So I have three beef coming back from the processor in a couple weeks. And the first thing I'm going to do is count or look at my inventory and then determine, okay, where does my profit need to be on all this beef? You can't just pull a number out of your hat. I did that. And in October of 2000 and 
so Brian, is this this is 23, 22, 21. In 2000 of in November of 2021, I put this is when I really learned uh this is this what I'm about to tell you is why I'm so adamant that we pay attention to our numbers. I sat down at my kitchen table in here and I put a pencil to my numbers or to my business and I realized how much money I was losing and I was in the hole over 30 grand because I wasn't paying attention to my numbers. I didn't count my inventory before I sold anything. I just put a price on it. Like, well, what do you think you need to sell it for? I don't know. What's it sell for in the grocery store? And then you would kind of, you put a number to that and you think, okay, well, I'm going to sell my ground beef for four or $5 a pound or whatever. And then before too long, you're $30,000 in the hole. And I was sitting there and I thought, if this is the best I can do, I'm done farming. Done right then. If I can't do anything better, I'm done. And it hit me. If you don't know what you have, you have no idea how much you need to sell it for. So I started doing an inventory on whatever product I have, whatever it is, if it's uh, chicken or beef. And I learned this is my number for selling these three beefs that I have. I, they come in and I, I get the beef back and I already know what the live animal is worth. The live animal, what's it worth? And the worth is everything. It's whatever that you have into that cow, whatever, basically, uh, for maybe in layman's terms, whatever you could get for it if you sold it at the auction. Let's just say that. That's what the animal's worth. Maybe worth more if you're selling it uh, direct to consumer. But for the sake of this conversation, let's just say at the auction. Okay. Okay. That animal comes in and it's worth $1,000. And then maybe not today's cattle dollars, but let's just say $1,000. And then your processing was $600. And then let's just say you got $200 in travel. So you're at $1,800. And you, you do the inventory on all the beef you get from this cow. And I wish I had known. Nobody told me this. There was, I'm not the only person who knows this. But there was no Nick Gann out there telling me this before October or November of 2021. There was no Nick Gann yelling at me, like my friend Lindsay says. I'm all, I'm in her face telling her. She's like, every time you talk to us, you're always up in our face telling us something. That's because nobody was in my face telling me, quit selling your ground beef for $4 a pound. You're going to be $30,000 in the hole. And so I'm telling these, I'm telling people, anybody who's willing to listen, who's selling their stuff, especially from their farm, because my... My heart's desire is is to be a farmer, to to be a rancher, to take care of live things, whether it be a live tomato plant or a live calf or a live chicken or a livestock guardian dog. And so you take that your your inventory and you you start pricing it at what you think that you can you want to sell it for. And then you add all that up. Remember, we were at eighteen hundred dollars. You add all that up and you're at nineteen hundred bucks. It's easy, Brian. You know you didn't. You're not selling it for enough. Is that the you made a hundred bucks? Is that the best you can do? Matter of fact, oh, there's a lot of guys going to the barn that'd be happy to make a hundred bucks a head. Okay, that goes back to the value of the live animal. But if you're they're making a hundred dollars on all of that work, because a lot of reason that farmers, a lot of farmers, the reason that they don't want to sell beef by the package like I do is they don't want to hang on to it. They don't want to have all those freezers. It takes time to sell all that beef. And you're going to tell me I'm going to do all of that and get a hundred bucks. Then you go back to your, your numbers and you say, okay, well, I can't sell my beef for $5 a pound. But, but what I was doing, Brian, 
was I would get to that end number and it wasn't $1,900. It was probably more like $1,500. And I did it over 54 head in 2021. Yeah. 54 head of cattle. And I lost money on every single one of them because I wasn't putting my numbers on paper and figuring out how much I'm making on this inventory. I don't know why I wasn't. It sounds stupid. You're like, well, that's just dumb, Nick. Well, it was. It was dumb. It was dumb. And, and I got my loan. That particular amount of money, I was in the hole. I'm down to $16,000 now. And every month when I make payments on that, I think, if you know what your farm could be doing with the money you're paying for that, that loan that you didn't have to have, that debt, let's call it debt, that debt that you didn't have to have if you had just paid attention to your numbers. That's called paying for an education, sir. You're right. I, I firmly believe every bit of education that I've ever gotten I've paid for, and some of it you pay for up front. Some of it you pay for a little later on a payment plan. And just a, just a lesson like that, you know, I, I've been informed by the universe in the last six months that I am not done being educated yet. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I, I'd hope that, um, that the day I go skid into my grave and bounce the last check I ever write, I still learned something on the way there. Cause if you're not, if you're not learning, you're not living, you're not growing. Yeah, you're, you're right. You're exactly right. And the merry minute that I think I know it all, uh, I'm probably toast. I think you know, when, when you get to the point where you think, you know, it all, if you say that out loud, the universe has a way of correcting you rapidly, rapidly. That's right. <laughs> rapidly. So, so, let let me uh let's finish this up with just a if you don't mind let me the last thing that I want to say is I'm honest and people tell me all the time folks who follow me on social media they tell me all the time that they appreciate my honesty that I tell them you know like I'm just like anybody else and I I'm okay with telling you that I struggle in the mornings that I had to change up my routine to get out of that funk, because I went through a funk. It was bad. I didn't know what I wanted to do. This was just this year. Heck, Brian, you were probably watching videos, or if you did, you may have been watching a video of me on social media and not knowing the funk that I was in, not knowing that I was I was hating farming. I was hating getting up. I was hating getting my clothes on, and I didn't even want to walk up to my shop. It's 100 feet from my house, and I didn't even want to, and I was in this funk, and and but but I told people, I would tell them, and and I tell them when things are aren't good and like this is what you're going to deal with. You're not always going to want to feed your animals. You're not always going to want to make sales. You're going to want to blame other people for things because that's what I do. And people are like, you know what? That's what I do too. And they appreciate me being honest. And I never really understood why I was. I don't, and I still don't know what makes me so candid. Uh, I used to write a blog years back. Uh, and that's what it was. It was basically, I started out writing a journal every morning. A guy had told me, you need to write a paragraph every morning about the person you are, the person that you want to be. And so I started writing this little paragraph every morning. And then one morning I thought, why don't you just post it, make it into a blog. And so I started doing that and it, it took off. It got very popular and, and it was just about me and the stuff I had to deal with in life, being a step parent and struggling with you know, like a bad financial decision or just, just, just things where I'm like regretting saying something, you know, you don't keep your mouth shut and then you got to pay for it. And, 
And so I've always been honest. And today I was reminded of a situation when I was in the 10th grade, I was in science class and the teacher asked me a question in front of everybody. And I said, I don't know. He asked me a question for something about science. And I just replied and said, I don't know the answer. And he stopped class and he said, one reason why I like you is because you're honest. And I'll t I haven't always been honest. I'm not, I, I've done things and I've lied and I haven't always told the truth. But what I'm getting at there is it's just, it's something people appreciate. Like just knowing, like knowing the stuff you deal with, it's helpful to other people. And when people know that I'm a farmer and I struggle with things that they're a farmer that they struggle with, they, they appreciate it. They, it's, it's, it's uh, encouraging to know that we're not alone. Yeah. Yes, it really is. And I think that's one of the cool things that, you know, has happened over the last five, six years and really got accelerated over COVID is social media use and people using social media, especially different platforms. Like at, as much of an evil time waster as TikTok is, it's, it's a fantastic medium for connecting like-minded people and, and sharing a lot of ideas really rapidly. Like there's no other social network that's really replicated that or been able to do that. But then again, you know, there's also interactions that we have on platforms like Facebook and Instagram and, um, and LinkedIn and Twitter with folks that you can't have on another platform. So, I mean, every one of these platforms, you know, they kind of have their own niche, but it, it's very refreshing now that a lot of these echo chambers are being broken and it's a lot more acceptable to talk about things like mental health and, and it's acceptable to admit that you're not doing okay or that you're struggling and to talk about it. That's become a lot more acceptable in the last couple of years. And I'm grateful for it. I am not, I'm not very good at it myself. You know, when I, when I have a tendency to struggle, I mostly do that. I mostly internalize that. And I try to process that internally. That's just who I am and, and how I was, how I was raised and how I learned to do it. I think it's great that, you know, that we have this, seems like there's this whole generation about ready to hit the workforce that are in touch that, you know, that don't have a problem talking about what they've screwed up or talking about that. They might not, you know, that they don't know everything and they're willing to seek knowledge. I think, I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, and then on the other hand, there's, there's all the evils of social media, which, you know, don't need to spend I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time on that. I mean, it can be a huge time suck. And you know, there's if you use it incorrectly, like any other tool, I think you use it incorrectly and it can do a lot of damage to you mentally and emotionally. You know, there are so many things and social media gets a bad rap, but there are so many things that fit that category of this can be really good or it can be really evil. Just like we talked earlier, your farm can be really good or it can bankrupt you because you're not paying attention. Social media can be really good, or it can tear your life apart because you're not paying attention. And, and one thing that I've tried to be lately, lately being in the last couple of years, is self-evaluate. Like, how good of a person am I being? Uh, am I 
uh, I'll tell you, my integrity over the last couple of years has greatly improved. I know that sounds crazy, but a lot of people deal with lack of integrity. And I was one of those people. And you don't want to tell people that. You're not going to, especially when you're dealing with it. But there's, there's so many aspects of life that can be just like social media. It can be really good or it can be really bad. And we have to pay attention. Yep. All right. Last thing I want to know about you, Nick. What'd mm -hmm. you do in the Air Force? Say that one more time. What'd you do in the Air Force? <laughs> I was, uh, my, my, in layman's terms, I was sheet metal. I did body work on airplanes, which was two jobs, actually. You would either fix problems with the metal or you painted airplanes. So it's just like body work. You know, you, you take a car in and it's got dents in it. Well, you might fix the dent. Maybe it's cracked or something. You might fix the crack because airplanes crack a lot because of speed and stress. And, and then you also would need to maybe paint something. If that panel that you just fixed, you had to sand it, fix it. Well, it needs painted now because the Air Force is big on corrosion control. So, so most of my time was spent in what we called the paint barn. And I painted F-15s. And I loved, matter of fact, the, the hardest, uh, the, the toughest decision I've ever had to make was whether or not to get out of the Air Force. It was so stressful. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what was the right decision for me. And I I just it was I just remember being so stressed. I just because you can't there's no going back. At that especially at that point, there was no going back. You you get out, you're done. And I chose to get out. And I don't regret it. So you would have got out for your first you would have got out what in 0102? Yeah, so I was due to get out in October of 2001. How'd that go? Uh, <laughs> uh, it didn't. Uh, I was, my, my four years was up in January of 2002, but the way, you know, time off or paid leave or whatever you call that, yeah. the way that works is if you have that, well, you, you get out early. And so I had a lot of, what did we call that, Brian? Uh, just leave. I mean, that's what we call leave. it in Navy. Leave. Yeah, leave. So I had leave built up, probably 60 days worth. I think that was the most you could build up. And so I started my out processing and then 9-11 hit. And there, there were certain fields that were critically manned. And mine was one of them. And they came to me and said, hey, you can't get out. And I thought, Here, this is what went through my mind. You mean, I just went through months of talking to anybody I could talk to about the hardest decision I'm ever having to make. And you're now telling me you can't get out? Anyway, so they kept me in until September of the of 2002. I was in Alaska my, my entire time, although I did do some TDY and other places. Fairbanks. I, I, was in, I, I was in Anchorage, and I got out. I had a job lined up. I had been working part-time for a company while I was in the Air Force, and I went full-time with them. And then, I don't know, I think in 2003, yeah, 2003, I moved back to Arkansas. I actually drove from Anchorage. Uh, down to San Jose, maybe, and then turned and came across. Went, I went to the, uh, I think I got on 40 somewhere near like the Grand Canyon area and all the way across to Little Rock. Took me, I wasn't in a hurry, Brian. Took me 21 days. Hey, if, if I was back in my mid-20s, 
and I had to drive from Anchorage, Alaska to Arkansas, maybe in my mid twenties, I would have just tried to do that in like two days. But now, yeah, you bet your ass. I'm going to take like three weeks and stop and see all the cool stuff along the way. Yeah, it was very cool. The, 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 the most difficult part of that was the day I left. I left at uh, two or four o'clock in the afternoon, September 18th, maybe. And I drove, I, you have to go north before you can go south to get to the Canadian border. And not far into Canada, I hit snow so thick you couldn't even tell where the road was and nobody else was driving around up there. So there were no tracks to follow. And I'll tell you, it was stressful. Uh, my tank started getting low and it's dark and there's snow everywhere in September 18th. Um, I made it through that night though. And if I made it through that night, I can make it through anything. Cause I'll tell you, there was no, there was nothing anywhere. And I finally hit this gas station that had a couple rooms in the back. So I was able to get gas and, and get some sleep. Now, now that was like early two thousands. That was before smartphones. That was when, if you wanted directions, you had to go on the internet to MapQuest and get your directions and then print that shit out and carry a folder of printed papers with you and maps like some kind of pirate. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I had an atlas. I had an atlas. And if you yep. got off that route that you had MapQuest directions for, you better pray to God your dad taught you how to read that Rand McNally road atlas or you were screwed. That's right. Cause you didn't print those papers off. Nope. <laughs> nope. I didn't print that road. Yeah. It was crazy to run into that much snow that early. And I, I remember being very worried cause my gas tank was getting low and I just thought there's nobody any, there's no one anywhere. It was, it was so low and almost on, almost on walk. Well, I'm glad you made it. Yeah, me too. Me too. All right. We got to wrap this up. It's been a lot of fun. I want to come visit you in Arkansas. I want to see what you got going on down there. And when I come, when I come, I'm going to bring my matches and I'm going to bring my drip torch. Your matches and your drip torch. Yes. And we're going to talk about fire. Okay. I... Just a few minutes before I, I, I found an article where you're kind of outspoken against prescribed fire and against burning. I want to change your mind. We'll work on that. Okay, we can do that. Hey, I'm open. I'm I'm open minded on on a lot of things. Very few things am I closed minded on. I I think burning. Okay, let me preface this with. In my management context, in the Great Plains. Fire is an extremely critical part of my ecosystem. I mean, th there's there's so many fire-dependent plants. I have to have fire on the landscape every periodically to stimulate my fire-dependent plants and fire-dependent ecosystem back to a better state of production. Not, I've never really spent a lot of time in Arkansas. I think I told you when we were talking, we were texting back and forth a while ago. So the only time I've been in Arkansas in my life was back in April. Okay. Tony and I, we took a, uh, it was mid April. I was getting really depressed, really stressed out. And we're like, all right, we got to get out of here for a few days. Let's go somewhere where it's green and it has rained. So we're like, okay, Southeast Oklahoma. 
So we went down to Broken Bow. We stayed down to Broken Bow for a few days. And she wanted to like she wanted to go back up towards Eureka Springs. So we found a place, I think I think it's like Beaver Island or Holiday Island or something up there in northwest Arkansas is where we ended up going. So to get from Broken Bow to there, you got to take a little road trip. So we went up through Oklahoma and we came then we went east on the the Talamina Scenic Byway. That's a special road. Like that one's a lot of fun. Like if if you're going east west through that part of the world, you should definitely take that Talamina Scenic Byway. Uh, Talamina. Yep, yep. It goes okay. from Talahena, Oklahoma, to Mena, Arkansas. Okay. And there's only a couple places to get on or off that road. <laughs> there. So that's why you went from Mena north, because you had mentioned to me that you went to Mena and then you yep. went north, and you're over there in the mountains. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was kind of the plan is we wanted to like mountains, trees, things green where it's been raining. And uh yeah. It was a great trip. It was a really great trip. But um so yeah, that that's been my Arkansas experience. And up there in northwest Arkansas, it's like you know, we didn't go down the interstate, we're going down back roads. I I swear every other farm up there is either Pilgrim's Pride, Sanderson Farms, or Tyson. It's like Yep. That's the part of the area. You know, Matter of fact, in that book, uh, Meat Racket, it it mentions a lot. Uh, it mean, what's the name of that town? Waldron. Yep. Mentioned Waldron a lot, and and you probably did you go through Waldron? On purpose, we went through Waldron. On like purpose, okay. All all seven and a half blocks of it. it didn't seem like there was yeah. a whole lot of Waldron. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not a big town. No. No. There's always important things that happen in small towns. Just. Not everybody always gets to hear about it. <laughs> That's true. All right. Nick Gann, I really appreciate it, man. It's been a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, I had a good time. I'm very grateful that you asked me. I appreciate it. And I hope that I have something to offer that doesn't bankrupt your podcast. <laughs> Dude, I had like a whole page of questions about your farm that I didn't even look at. So we're fine. Good deal. All right. Appreciate you. Appreciate you being here. And, um, all those of you out in podcast land, go have a great week. All right. Thank you, Brian. Yep. See ya. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.